Hello and welcome back to Another World Audiobooks, bringing you stave three of this magical, amazing project, A Christmas Carol, an audio drama. Yes, we are taking a little break from Hound of the Baskervilles, if you're just now tuning in, and I don't know how that could be possible, <laughs> since we put out two awesome episodes before this of stave one and stave two, and now we're on to stave three of A Christmas Carol. Oh man, I'm just enjoying this so much, I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am, and as much as I enjoyed putting it all together, uh, with the help of these 21 amazing voice actors from around the world thank you again to each and every one of them for making this possible uh yeah i i could not be more happy or proud of what is has been produced and i hope you are enjoying it remember to share this with people that you know who might enjoy it um yeah i just really i love this story i love a christmas carol in case you couldn't tell the fact that i'm doing this book now for the third time uh might say something about that but uh yeah don't forget again if you go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com all the instructions are there as well as in the show notes for how you can get a free copy of the full version of this audio drama and also support operation christmas child we've done this whole audio drama to benefit operation christmas child so so go over there donate to operation christmas child send me a uh, copy of your receipt and i will put you on the list uh as like a pre-order for the full version of the audio drama once it is ready so oh man get ready this is stave three of a christmas carol you guys are gonna love it the ghost of christmas present ah just doesn't get much better than this except for the next stave and the stave before it and the stave after it and the stave before that one so they're all just amazing but i really love this came together so nice so now without further ado enjoy stave three of a Christmas Carol. Dimmit. Dimmit. Scrooge, come enter. A light shone through Scrooge's door. It was not a light he recognized. It was brighter more cheery than any his dull apartment had ever known. Slowly drawing the door open, Scrooge peered in, seeking the voice that had called him. On the other side, Scrooge saw his own room. There was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceilings were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney, as that dull petrification of a hearth had ever known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many, many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor, to form a kind of throne, were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, Sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in a shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. <laughs> come in! Come in! And know me better, man! I am the ghost of Christmas present! Look upon me! 
Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holy wreath set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. <laughs> you have never seen the like of me before! Never? I've never walked forth with the younger members of my family. Meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these later years? I don't think I have. I'm afraid I have not. Have you many brothers, Spirit? Ho 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 ho! More than 1,800! A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Aha! Touch my robe! Scrooge did as he was told, and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, fruit, and punch all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning, where, for the weather was severe, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses, whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it come plumping down into the road below and splitting into artificial little snowstorms. The house fronts looked black enough, and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs, and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposits had been ploughed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons, furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times, where the great streets branched off and made intricate channels, hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was gloomy, and the shorter streets were choked up in a dingy mist, half-thawed, half-frozen, whose heavier particles descended in showers of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had, by one consent, caught fire and were blazing away to their dear heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavoured to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets, and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball. Better-natured missiles far than many a wordy jest, laughing heartily if it went right, and not less heartily if it went wrong. The pelterer's shop was still half-open, and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great, round, pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the streets in their apoplectic opulence. There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish friars, 
and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness at the girls as they went by and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water as they passed. There were piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods, and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through withered leaves. There were Norfolk biffins, squab and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and, in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. The very gold and silver fish set forth among these choice fruits in a bowl, though members of a dull and stagnant-blooded race appeared to know that there was something going on. And two fish went gasping round and round their little world in slow and passionless excitement. The grocers! Oh, the grocers! Nearly closed, with perhaps two shutters down, or one. But through those gaps, such glimpses... It was not alone that the scales descending on the counter made a merry sound, or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly, or that the canisters were rattled up and down like juggling tricks, or even that the blended sense of tea and coffee was so grateful to the nose, or even that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruit so caked and spotted with molten sugar as to make the coldest lookers-on feel faint and subsequently bilious. Nor was it that the figs were moist and pulpy, or that the French plums blushed in modest tartness from their highly decorated boxes, or that everything was good to eat and in its Christmas dress. But the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, clashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter, and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humour possible. While the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons behind might have been their own, worn outside for general inspection, and for the Christmas doors to peck at if they chose. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revellers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as the bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humour was restored directly. For, they said, it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day. And so it was, God love it, so it was. In time the bells ceased, and the bakers were shut up, and yet there was a genial shadowing forth of all these dinners, and the progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavour in what you sprinkle from your torch? Aye, there is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? Ho, <laughs> ho! To any kindly given, to a poor one, most. Why to a poor one, most? 
because it needs it most. Spirit, I wonder you, of all the beings in the many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. What is that you say? You would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, wouldn't you? You seek to close these places on the seventh day, and it comes to the same thing. You don't know what you're saying there, man! Forgive me if I am wrong, but it has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family. Aye, there are some upon this earth of yours who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name who are estranged to us and all our kith and kin, as if they had never lied. Remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Very well. I will. They went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the baker's, that, notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hole. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men, that led him straight to Scrooge's clerk. For there he went, and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled, and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that! Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then rose up Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap, and made a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and, getting the corners of his monstrous shirt-collar, Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honour of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they had smelt the goose, and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table, and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud, although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire, until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. Whatever has got your precious father, then? And your brother, Tiny Tim? And Martha weren't as late last Christmas Day by half an hour? Here's Martha, Mother. Here's Martha, Mother. Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha! Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are. We'd, uh, 
quite a deal of work to finish up last night and had to clear away this morning, Mother. Well, never mind. So long as you are come, sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm Lord bless ye. No, no, there's Father coming. Oh, hide, Martha, hide! <laughs> Why, where's Martha? Not coming. Not coming? Not coming upon Christmas Day? Here I am, Father. <laughs> Martha! And how did little Tim behave? As good as gold. And better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped that people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant for them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and, mounting guard upon their posts, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last, the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did... And when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There was never such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavour, size and cheekness were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet every one had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onions to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose, a supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello, a great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other, with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. 
In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quartern of ignited brandy, and bedighted with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, what a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that, now the weight was off her mind, she would confess that she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had said something about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last, the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table, and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers, and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, oh no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he be like today, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Man, if man you be in heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than the millions like this poor man's child. Oh, God! To hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Mr. Scrooge, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children... Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on which one drinks the elf of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, Christmas Day. 
I'll drink to his health, for your sake, and for the days, not for his. Long life to him. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. You'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for a full five minutes. After it passed away, they were ten times merrier than before, from the mere relief of Scrooge the Baleful being done with. Bob Cratchit told them how he had a situation in his eye for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, full five and six pence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter's being a man of business, and Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars, as if he were deliberating what particular investments he should favour when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at a milliner's, then told them what kind of work she had to do, and how many hours she worked at a stretch, and how she meant to lie in bed tomorrow morning for a good long rest, tomorrow being a holiday she passed at home. Also, how she had seen a countess and a lord some days before, and how the lord was much about as tall as Peter. At which, Peter pulled up his collar so high that you couldn't have seen his head if you had been there. All this time, the chestnuts in the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a lost child travelling in the snow, from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice, and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof, their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and content with the time. And when they faded, and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim until the last. By this time it was getting dark, and snowing pretty heavily and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens, parlours, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. Here, the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cosy dinner, with hot plates baking through and through before the fire, and deep red curtains, ready to be drawn to shut out cold and darkness. There, all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, aunts, and to be the first to greet them. Here again were shadows on the window blind of guests assembling, and there a group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur-booted and all chatting at once, tripped lightly off to some near neighbor's house, where, woe upon the single man who saw them enter, artful witches, well they knew it, in a glow. But if you had judged from the numbers of people on their way to friendly gatherings, you might have thought that no one was at home to give them welcome when they got there, instead of every house expecting company and piling up its fires half chimney high. Blessings on it, how the ghost exulted, how it bared its breadth of breast, and opened its capacious palm, and floated on, outpouring, with a generous hand, its bright and harmless mirth on everything within its reach. The very lamplighter, who ran on before, dotting the dusky street with specks of light, and who was dressed to spend the evening somewhere, laughed out loudly as the spirit passed, though little Ken, the lamplighter, that he had any company but Christmas. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and the water spread itself wheresoever it listed. 
or would have done so, but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and furs and coarse rank grass. Down in the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? A place where miners live, who labor in the bowels of the earth. But they know me. <laughs> See? A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, and their children, and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely as they raised their voices, the old man got quite blithe and loud, and so surely they stopped, his vigour sank again. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and, passing on above the moor, sped whither? Not to see. To see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water. As it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn, and fiercely tried to undermine the earth, built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, some leagues or so from shore, on which the waters chafed and dashed the wild year through, there stood a solitary lighthouse. Great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm birds, born of the wind one might suppose, as seaweed of the water, rose and fell about it like the waves they skimmed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire that, through the loophole in the thick stone wall, shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. Joining their hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog, and one of them, the elder too, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, as the figurehead of an old ship might be, struck up a sturdy song that was like a gale in itself. Again the ghost sped on, on and on above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until being far away, as he told Scrooge from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. But every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had a kinder word for another on that day than on any in the year, and had shared to some extent in its festivities, and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known that they delighted to remember him. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while listening to the moaning of the wind, and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secrets as profound as death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while thus engaged, to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize, 
it was his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with a spirit standing smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. <laughs> he said that Christmas was a humbug as I live. He believed it too. More shame for him, Fred. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth. And not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he's very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. <laughs> he hasn't the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? You don't lose much of a dinner, do you think? Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to hear it, because I haven't great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Oh, a bachelor is a wretched outcast and has no right to express an opinion on the subject. Do go on, Fred. He never finishes what he begins to say. He's such a ridiculous <laughs> fellow. I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. I am sure he loses pleasanter companions than he can find in his own thoughts, either in his moldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him if he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the same vein to leave his poor clerk fifty pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. After tea, they had some music, for they were a musical family and knew what they were about. When they sung a glee or catch, I can assure you. Especially Topper, who could growl away in the bass like a good one and never swell the large veins of his forehead, or get red in the face over it. Scrooge's niece played well upon the harp, and played among other tunes a simple little air, a mere nothing, you might learn to whistle it in two minutes, which had been familiar to the child who fetched Scrooge from the boarding school, as he had been reminded by the ghost of Christmas past. When this strain and music sounded, all the things that ghost had shown him came upon his mind. He softened more and more, and thought that if he could have listened to it often, years ago, he might have cultivated the kindness of life for his own happiness with his own hands, without resorting to the sexton spade that buried Jacob Marley. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while they played it forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Oh, there was a first game of blind man's buff. Of course there was. And I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is that it was a done thing between him and Scrooge's nephew, and that the ghost of Christmas present knew it. The way he went after the plump sister and the lace tucker was an outrage on the credulity of human nature, knocking down the fire irons, tumbling over the chairs, bumping against the piano, smothering himself among the curtains. Wherever she went, there went he. He always knew where the plump sister was. 
he wouldn't catch anybody else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did, on purpose, he would have made a feint of endeavouring to seize you, which would have been an affront to your understanding, and would instantly have sidled off in the direction of the plump sister. She often cried out that it wasn't fair, and it really was not, but when at last he caught her, when in spite of all her silken rustlings and her rapid fluttering past him, he got her into a corner whence there was no escape, then his conduct was the most execrable. For his pretending not to know her, his pretending that it was necessary to touch her headdress, and further, to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger, and a certain chain about her neck, was vile, monstrous. No doubt she told him her opinion of it when, another blind man being in office, they were so very confidential together, behind the curtains. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind man's buff party, but was made comfortable with a large chair and a footstool in a snug corner where the ghost and Scrooge were close behind her. But she joined in the forfeits and laughed her love to admiration with all the letters of the alphabet. Likewise, at the game of how, when, and where, she was very great, and to the secret joy of Scrooge's nephew, beat her sisters hollow. Though they were sharp girls too, as anyone could have told you. There might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, for wholly forgetting the interest he had in what was going on, that his voice made no sound in their ears. He sometimes came out with his guess quite loud, and very often guessed quite right too, for the sharpest needle, best Whitechapel warranted not cut in the eye, was not sharper than Scrooge, blunt as he took it in his head to be. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with favour. Spirit, please, let us stay and enjoy this a while more. Please? Ah, it cannot be done. Here's a new game they're about to play. One half hour, Spirit, only one. I'm thinking of something. Is it an animal? Yes. Is it a live animal? Yes. Is it a disagreeable animal? <laughs> yes. Ah, would you say that it is a savage animal? <laughs> yes. Fred, does this animal growl and grunt sometimes? Or does it talk sometimes? <laughs> yes. Does it live in London and walk about the streets? Yes. Is it made a show of, or led by anybody? No. Does it live in a menagerie? Not that I'm aware of. Is it a dog? No. Is it a bear? <laughs> Wrong again. I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> You've got it! <laughs> I hardly think that is fair. Certainly your reply to, is it a bear, ought to have been yes, inasmuch as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted my thoughts from Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> he has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, and it would be ungrateful not to drink to his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine ready to our hand at the moment, and I say... Uncle Scrooge! Well, Uncle Scrooge! Well, Uncle Scrooge! A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, wherever he is. He wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge!
Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so happy and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last word spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirit stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich, in almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge, where vain man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it, until they left a children's twelfth night party, when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was grey. Our spirit's life so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight, at midnight. Ha ha ha! The time is drawing near. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? Aye. It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here. Oh, man. Look here. Look. Look down here. Behold this boy and this girl. Yellow, eager. Ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility. Where graceful youth should fill these features out and touch them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age has pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurk and glare out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade through all the mysteries of wonderful creation has monsters half so horrible and dread. Spirit, are they yours? <laughs> they are man's, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorant. This girl is what? 
Beware them both, and all of their degree. But most of all, beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is due. Unless the writing can be erased. Deny it! Slander those who tell it ye! Admit it for your factious purposes and make it worse! And abide the end! Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. Ah, the creepiness. I love it. So good. Uh, ghost story of Christmas, indeed. Oh, man. Wait, people, until you hear stave four, uh, the ghost of Christmas uh, future. <laughs> Bone chilling. So good. So good. Uh, and I just I love A Christmas Carol and how it just kind of takes the, the ghost story but kind of keeps it light but actually makes it serious at the same time. It's just a beautiful combination. Anyway, huge shout out, huge thank you to the generous supporters who make this podcast possible. Huge shout out to Aaron and Mike and Corky, as well as to John and Etiosa. Thank you so much for donating and supporting Another World Audiobooks. If you'd like to join uh, the loyal citizens of Another World, you can just go to anchor.fm slash Another World Audiobooks. You can see the uh, support this podcast button. Just click on that and uh, you can donate to uh, you know help keep this podcast going. If you enjoy uh, what we're doing, if you think it's worthwhile and you'd like to throw a couple bucks uh, our way to help. This is just labor of love. Just me uh, recording audiobooks and I have a wonderful assistant who's helping me doing a bit of editing on a volunteer basis <laughs> so it's all volunteer basis if you want to help support though and uh, help us grow the podcast uh, you can do that um, on the website also anotherworldaudiobooks.com I don't talk about this a whole lot but if you go there uh, scroll down a little bit you'll see actually more ways to support the podcast so we actually have some merchandise uh, store uh, where you can buy like t-shirts and hats and stuff like that There's some pretty cool designs that I've created myself uh, I, I think they're cool anyway I guess I'll have to let you be the judge of that um there's also opportunities to advertise on the podcast if we want to get some actual sponsors of the podcast if you have a business that you think might be a good fit for the listeners of another world audiobooks go ahead and uh, get in touch with me there all the information is on anotherworldaudiobooks.com and you can also buy the full versions of the past audiobooks so you can go back and listen through the backlist if you'd like that's totally cool i love seeing all the downloads growing but if you don't want to have to download multiple episodes you just want the whole thing in one shot you can also go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com scroll down and there is 
a link to buy audiobooks. So you can buy the full versions. I mean, we've got Pride and Prejudice, we've got Frankenstein, we've got Treasure Island, uh, Tarzan, I mean, a bunch of Sherlock books, so all kinds of awesomeness. So go ahead and uh, check that out if you'd like to support the podcast that way. So yeah, again, uh, we are coming at you here next week as we lead up to Christmas with Stave 4, uh, the Ghost of Christmas Future. It's so good. People, <laughs> it's so good. And don't forget to share the podcast. That is really the biggest thing. If you you know don't have the money to, to uh, become a supporter or buy audiobooks or you know buy merchandise or advertise on the podcast, that's totally fine. Uh, the reason I put this podcast out here is because audiobooks are expensive and I want to get some high quality, awesome audiobooks out to the world. And this is kind of my way of doing that. So uh, the best way to support the podcast, if you can't do any of the other things, is just to tell people. Because the more listeners we get, the bigger uh, audience we have here on Another World Audiobooks, the better. So please help me spread the word. You can do that. There's Check out the social media. I've been putting a lot of cool stuff. You can check out all the all the actors who are, are participating in this project. And I'm, I'm putting pictures of them on there with uh, all their roles and all this sort of thing. Came out really cool. Huge shout out to uh, Carl Nordman, who played uh, Jacob Marley. He's actually an amazing graphic artist who put all that stuff together. So um, anyway... Oh, I ramble a lot when I'm excited, I guess, but uh, so enjoy doing this and I hope you're enjoying it as well. So thanks for sharing thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist.